0: Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Arielle Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guests. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Albert Edelman. He is the co-founder, one of three, of the watch brand Zeitwinkel. Albert, welcome.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Hello, everybody.
0: So before uh, we start the show, we chat a little bit, and you mentioned a, a number that I actually didn't realize was so long. You said the brand has been around for 17 years, which is, which is a funny age in the watch industry because you're far too young to be a legacy brand, but you're also far too mature to be a startup. What is the right title for the stage that your brand is in right now? I don't really know.
1: <laughs> okay, so the, a British uh, watch journalist uh, wrote an article that will actually appear the day we are recording this, and I got to read it just um, to um, find any factual errors. Um And he wrote that um, next year, Zeitwinkel will be old enough to drink in many jurisdictions. Now, we (laughs) don't want a brand that uh, drinks, obviously. Um, But I think that's a pretty good comparison because we have made many of the mistakes you make at that age, and you should have made by that age. But we're um, also um, still young enough to be fresh to not... Um, say, this is a heritage we bought as a brand, now we have to keep this, or that uh, we have always done that way. And while the founders may um, not be 20 anymore or 18, um, I think we all share that enthusiasm and the uh, creative spirit. So yeah, we're in an interesting stage where people might have heard of us, but quite a few haven't, um, and all the better that you're having us. Thank you.
0: It's an interesting thing that you're mentioning where the founders are either still alive or still work at the brand because that affords maximum flexibility. And I think this is so important in context because when I meet people who work at a brand that they didn't start, they tend to feel very careful. Like, I didn't start this brand. I don't control this brand. I'm like taking care of it for a little while, which means I can't fundamentally mess it up. Like someone else designed it, someone else decorated it. I'm here to sort of, you know, keep things kind of tidy and make sure that it's at least as good (laughs) when I left as it is when I started. Whereas when you are the founder, this idea that there's a built-in personality, it doesn't exist because you are still forming that personality, right?
1: yes um, and I wouldn't generalize it that much in obviously in corporate brands where you work in a large conglomerate, it's exactly like you said. You don't want to leave it behind worse than when you started at that brand two years ago but if I've seen quite a few examples where somebody came into a nearly dormant small brand and um, injected new life into it
0: um, which is funny. Yes, yes. But this is a funny thing where you have an entrepreneur and they obviously have a lot of fresh original ideas. But for whatever reason, rather than invent a new name, it's like they have to go like restart an old name just as just to have a platform for their new ideas. And I always find this kind of very ironic and funny.
1: Yes, and uh, that's exactly the reason why we decided we didn't want one of our names in there because we would have fought over it uh, for months (laughs) um, whose name it would be. Um, But seriously, we also didn't want to revive an old existing brand name that has been out there and then claim we've been doing this for 200 years. When we started, there were quite a few still available, but we didn't think that was honest. Because no, we don't have a history of 200 years. And frankly, hardly any of the brands that claim it have a consistent history over 200 years of making wristwatches.
0: That's, that's totally true. So let's talk a little bit about who you three individuals were and what was going on in your lives when you were, when you were making this decision to start a watch club. I really want to get the story of what the brand is about and why you started and how you started. But what was going on in your lives and who were you three people?
1: Okay, so I think if you had to boil it down to one person we look at first, that would be Peter. Peter had been in the watch industry, he had the distribution rights for one of the Glashwilter brands outside Mm -hmm. of Europe. So he got to see both the way watches are made, and he was deeply... Involved in um, that time when Klaas Hütte became what it is today, um, but on the other hand, he also had a lot of experience in the retail space, and I had followed his journey through those interesting times um, quite closely. I, I did some some travels with him when he visited customers, for example, in Kuwait or in in other countries, and or. I happened to be in that country and we met up and discussed watches. And the more we did that, the more we believed that the path of putting an ETA movement into, let's say, um, not quite Swiss-sourced cases with dials and hands and then um, put a high price sticker on that that doesn't that's not sustainable it will not continue to work and keep in mind we're talking 2004 2005 here
0: and this is at the time where Etta was saying we're going to stop supplying like this was a slightly different conversation back then than today but there was information out there that this movement supplier which was really one of the only ones at the time there's much more competition today was basically going to stop right
1: Yes, and, and we even had that discussion before that became apparent. There were always discussions, there were threads, um, but already Celita was around um, and considering going into the uh, production of what is effectively a very good ETA clone. Um, so that was not a driver for us to, to have that discussion, but we um, just wanted to build an honest watch. That's what it always boils down to. And... If you have long evenings in a country where you um, feast away on watermelon juice, um, you start having crazy ideas. And Peter, although he's probably the cautious one in this setup, he's a um, pilot um, on the side, and he always thinks in (laughs) alternative landing spots. So when you discuss a project, he will always tell you, oh, but if this goes wrong, then we really have to look at that problem that might follow. Um, but he's also the one that has the ideas that are most far out there. So he then threw the idea on the table. Let's start with building our own movement. Let's just, you know, simulate how we would build a watch. And that's at the time I was involved in renewable energies since way back when that was not fashionable. And, um, I had ended up in a conglomerate situation, so I didn't want to stay in that. I didn't want to um worry about stock exchange and um managing huge teams and that was just not me okay I'm probably not uh inflexible enough for that so i I need you know different things that happen so I thought, well, this could be interesting. Let's let's take a closer look at that. And um, we didn't have a clear idea what the brand would be. We didn't really um, have an idea <laughs> what the watches would look like exactly. So we, we teamed up with a, another person we had been friendly with, and who very, very fast became a very close friend, which is Max, um, or his, his full name is Ivica Maximovic he um also lives in the area where we where pete and i come from the southwest of germany and he had an interesting biography as in having come from yugoslavia his parents fled yugoslavia relocated to germany they had to start from zero And he was, as a child, already interested in art and advertisement. And (laughs) the story he told somebody in New York recently and that I hadn't heard before in all those years was that he got into arts and advertising because when he was 10 years old, newly arrived in Germany, he saw a vodka advertisement that he liked so much that he thought, Mom, please buy me that vodka, it's uh, a great advertisement, <laughs> this, this really makes sense for me. So luckily his mom didn't do that, and uh, his course changed from wanting to buy the stuff that he sees in advertisements, to create advertisements, to create art that entices, I don't know, people to, to buy products that they like, but to help them understand why they like them which I found pretty interesting. So Max studied art and became an an, an art professor or um, a professor for communication design and, and marketing at one of the art universities in, in Germany. But he also had his advertising, advertising agency on the side. And so when we um, discussed the idea to start a watch brand with him, he immediately took out his... Um, notebook and started to scribble.
0: Oh, this is the best for a designer because you get to do a logo, you get to do the the branding, you get to do product design. Like designers love this stuff.
1: Yes, and um, he he does it to this day. So we were at uh, the show in New York um, a few months ago, and he sat there all day, same in in London, scribbling, just um, also drawing people that were at the booth. It's just in him; cool. he, it just flows. You know, we were flying to New York. And he was um, drawing people in the airplane. It's just constant. So he's um, to this day a, a source of of creative ideas. And um, even though he's seventy years now, him and I are probably the two you could put in a room full of twelve year olds, and we would get along just fine. We would probably have most of them gang up on the others. <laughs> I don't Did know. Did you
0: have a special in in the watchings? industry? I know you said that Peter. I was working in the watch industry at the time and obviously understood some of the business. But, you know, the trick and I started getting to the point here when it comes to watches is making the best possible watch for as little amount of money as possible. So you can actually have a competitive product in the marketplace. You know, did, did you have some special access that you felt would allow you to do something like that?
1: Um, yes and no. Peter had a lot of that experience. He knew a lot of the suppliers. Uh, remember, it was the time when Glashütte was rebuilt after the opening of the Berlin Wall. So yeah. everything had to be imported from other areas because there was hardly anything left. And by imported, I mean not only physical imports, but also the the way of doing things. It was the, the times of Günter Blümlein. Who revived um, what then became Lange and Zöne? Which was a very
0: exciting story and a very celebrated individual.
1: Yes, yeah. yeah. And um, I I think uh, it's very important that his contribution is is not forgotten.
0: So, what was, talk about it for you. Many people uh, are hearing that name for the first time who's listening to the show. Just very quickly, what did that person's work do to inspire yourself?
1: Well, not myself necessarily personally, but um, Peter had quite a few interactions with him and he, although not from a hands-on perspective, more from the sales side, got to see how these brands were built or rebuilt and um, what role Günter Blümlein played in it. And he told me quite often about evenings in the only hotel where everybody could go to near Glashütte and you had four corners in the restaurant. One corner was the independents like him. Um, One corner was the Swatch Group. One corner was what then would become the Richmond people. And um, there was also some space left for regular guests and civilians. So there was a lot of interaction there. And uh, I think that is also one of the recurring themes in the, in the watch industry. Although there's obviously competition, especially between the large conglomerates, it's um, also somewhat of a family.
0: Was it important for you to have your company in Switzerland versus Germany? Because for me, obviously you hear the name of the brand and you, you see the aesthetic, there's a, there's a German watchmaking element, a deep one, yet the, it is a Swiss company in St. Imier, I believe. Uh, talk about why Switzerland versus Germany.
1: Yes, and, and that brings also brings me back to the question of did we have the knowledge of how to produce something in the most affordable or most economic way? We had some of that. But we didn't aim for that. We wanted to build an honest watch, so we started with our own movement. And we wanted the movement parts to come from where the movement would be built. We wanted the cases, hands, dials to be made close to where we would build those watches. And it was clear fairly quickly that we couldn't do that in Klaus Hütte because there was just very little there. It's different now. But at the time, there were hardly any suppliers, there was hardly any true component production in class. Finishing and assembly, yes, of course. So we looked at different locations in Switzerland, and it was also clear we wouldn't go for any of the flashy sites, and eventually settled for a small town, 5,000 people, with a lot of tradition in watchmaking, and we were the first to occupy a former um, dial factory, which okay. still smelled of production. It still smelled of machine oil. And that's yeah, where we that are smell. to this day. Yeah.
0: Was that, I mean, that sounds like an expensive endeavor. Where Where does one get funding for an operation like that, especially in the sort of early 2000s?
1: Well, it's a good way to make a small fortune if you start with a larger one. Um, okay. No, it, <laughs> No, it was all self-funded.
0: <laughs> okay, so that so, so that that was because you agree this is this is a difficult thing, even as multiple entrepreneurs, to convince someone else to fund because this is really a, a, a passion project, and there's no way of having profit forecasting with a passion project.
1: Yes, and um, also bringing us back to the question about knowledge in the industry. If we had done this in a way that. Many others did it at the time. You buy this um, off the shelf. You buy dials off the shelf, a movement, whatever. Um, obviously, it's fairly easy to calculate and the only variable is how many can you sell. How much do customers like your product? But if you do everything yourself, if the every bridge, every wheel, every part in the movements, in the case, in the dials is individual, I think you nearly automatically underestimate the time it takes, the expenses, the things that can and will go wrong. So, yes, uh, we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into.
0: So talk about some of the headaches uh, or the hurdles that you were able to overcome in regard to those unpredictable uh, headaches.
1: Well, it's, I wouldn't want to scare anyone off from um, you know starting their own watch brand, so Yes, there were headaches, but there were also a lot of fun times, and it it was an intense learning curve. But to give you a a nice example, um, you find out that you have to do some stuff you didn't think you would have to do, like an additional step in having somebody draw something additionally in CAD, um, which you didn't calculate for, and which sets you back a five-digit amount if you look at all the components fairly quickly. Or if your um, engineering partner who works on the movements for you, who is just about to uh, finish um, the first prototype stage, um, doesn't survive the financial crisis of 2008. And you have to pick up all the components you have, Ordered luckily yourself, uh, from suppliers. You have a luckily qualified yourself. Put everything in the trunk of a station wagon and drive it out of there before, um, somebody else takes it. And then you're oh left my, oh with, uh, you're left with components. You're left with, of course, plans. But as anybody knows who has built their own movement, uh, movement plans are a nice indication. They're like a, the, a, yeah. a first uh, stage of a movie script. Nothing more.
0: What's the right mixture of how much to make versus how much to to get from a supplier? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of benefits to making everything yourself. But as you said, there's an enormous amount of risk and a lot of things that go wrong. And you need probably, I'm guessing, a a really big volume to justify it. So it sounds like your team wanted to do as much in-house as possible. But like, how much is too in-house?
1: Okay, Um, so I I can only tell you what we do. And it's very obviously different for everybody who starts a watch brand, but we have all the components or nearly all the components manufactured by partners in the vicinity of Saint-Imier. But, and, and for some of the decorations, we also have partners, but we finish everything, we build everything in-house. Um, so let's say you have a pinion that consists of three um, different components. We assemble that in-house, we set all the stones, We apply some of the decorations. We spend about 75% of our uh, of what our watchmakers do is just preparing components, black polishing, um, I don't know, fixing components that are not quite what they should be when they come from a supplier. We also now have the in-house capacity to build components because this being a fluid situation at the moment it's very unreliable um if you get a, a manufacturing date or a completion date for a component so occasionally we have to go to the lathers, to the cnc machine um to some other machines and manufacture 10 pieces of something that we would usually get um, 100 pieces of um, is it are there economies of scale we could get if we had somebody else assemble, for example, um, movement um, subgroups? Yes, but that would also mean we would be giving that part away, and we couldn't guarantee the quality of um, of how that is built. And we're very reluctant to do that because the the way our movement is constructed, it doesn't lend itself to automatization.
0: So but to it sounds. It sounds as though this flexibility also comes with rapidly changing manufacturing costs. And when you have to make your own parts, for example, that could be a lot of time and money you didn't anticipate. Is it true that your approach to it, while having a lot of benefits, from an economic standpoint, sounds like every production run you know, costs a different amount of money?
1: Um, yes and no, because <clears throat> in an ideal world, it wouldn't. But let's say you get a component that looks okay, you checked it when it came in, but then you actually put it into the watch or um, into the movement, and you find out what wasn't visible in, let's say, 15% of those components um, actually makes it unsuitable for use in in the watches in a large conglomerate, he would just throw them away and um, um, charge it to the supplier. But for us, it means we cannot deliver those watches that are due to be delivered next week. So somebody has to go and repair those or finish, um, which is probably a better expression, finish um, those components. Yes, it's, it's an additional cost, but getting new ones from the supplier might be a six to 12 months ordeal. And then the customer wouldn't get their watch.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, again, as I've interviewed many people in your position, what I've recognized is in addition to the simple economics of trying to keep manufacturing costs down, the other big hurdle is delivery times. And whether that is waiting for a supplier to deliver you something or you have very little control over that or uh, your own internal process where you have a certain number of watches you need to make and you just can't, <laughs> you know, gather the manpower to do so. Uh, and, and then you can lose a bunch of money by not fulfilling uh, your obligations. Those seem to be sort of the two ongoing issues. But it sounds that relationships is the one way that you can fix that, whether you have relationships with your own team or relation with suppliers. Talk about the sort of um, the other side of business which is more invisible and that is the ongoing diplomacy and relationships between uh friends and partners if you will
1: yes and and for us the economic um issue is is not the main driver of course you need to earn some money at the end of the day you need to pay your um your team but If there was a shortcut where we could save money and we could, for example, not decorate a part of the movement that you don't see because nobody will ever see it, right? Nobody will take that apart. Um, We would not do that. We would still decorate it. It's probably in the DNA and um, part of the reason why we started that brand. And relationships are a good and important point because not coming from the Swiss ecosystem of watch professionals that have worked, for example, in one of the large conglomerates and have a network of people they can take with them from brand to brand. We had to really build relationships from from zero. And it's not easy. If you come to Switzerland from another country, you're a German speaker, but you want to build something in the French part of Switzerland and most of the suppliers will um, only talk French with you. Um, it's very, very important to gain trust and to build relationships. And I would think that, obviously, the relationship with the customers is the most important one. And I would like to discuss a little more how you see it. But um, for them, it's very important to see who's behind the brand. Then relationship with your staff, because you don't have a production that goes from nine to five and... Um, What they haven't done by five o'clock can be done tomorrow. No, maybe the watches will be picked up by FedEx tomorrow morning, so they have to be ready tonight. And then that goes into the next ring, which is um, your close supply partners. And then the supply partners that might have heard of you and might have heard from other suppliers that um, you are reliable or a good partner to work with or maybe not. And obviously, last but not least, the, the other small brands, because there's a lot of exchange between those, which I find quite interesting.
0: Talk a little bit more about some of the camaraderie versus the competition, because I see both sides so strongly when you look at the Swiss watch industry. You see this amazing camaraderie that you rarely see outside of, of industries that are, are so cultural-based and so historically-based. But you also see at the same time vicious competition where consumers are like why do these two brands hate each other so much but you know they one brand wants to topple the other brand wants to be like the other brand is saying no we do it you don't do it so how how do these two very different sides of the industry find harmony between this sort of uh, you know friendship versus fighting element in terms of the uh, the, the various suppliers and brands within this small industry
1: Well, I I like to compare it to a rainforest. What what you just mentioned, uh, we will do it, they will not do it. That is something that you see or tend to see, in my opinion, a little more among the um, corporate brands of the large five um, corporations. So even even within those uh, conglomerates, you have brands fighting over who gets to use that innovation and claim they were working on it all along. But... With the smaller brands, there's obviously a competition. There's, the customer will buy one watch. Will, it, will they buy yours or mine? But there's a lot more to gain from being friendly, from exchanging experiences, from helping each other. And you build a network where you see each other all the time at um, watch events, at shows. Um, you might run into each other at a supplier's. And I think, that is, there's always the competition, of course. You need to stress what your brand is about. And if you're stressing a certain feature, obviously you're implying that not having that feature or having it in a different way um, is not as good as your um, way of doing that. But um, it's not fierce. I, w- I would think it's it's also beautiful how younger brands um, that come in are protected by people who have done this for very long time or who are superstars. And one of the best examples for me is the Festival of Time um, in Waterford, Ireland, which took place for the second time this year. And you would have people coming in from the street last year talking to Vianney Halter for half an hour or this year to Gary Wutilein, who didn't have the... The slightest idea who they were talking to, they um, just talked <laughs> <laughs> about, about watches to them. And then you have um, brands that m- might have started two years ago, and they're sitting there with Kari, and he looks at um, what they've done and tells them, oh, I like this, and uh, maybe you want to think about that. That's worth so much. It's, it's just wonderful. And, of course, we're all competing for that one left wrist. But at the end of the day, there's so much to gain from, from supporting each other. And it's fun. We we have some true friends like Dave um, Brailsford from Garrick, um, Martin Klocker from from Sherpa Watches, um, many others that, yes, they run a watch company, but uh, we also like to spend time with them.
0: Uh, you, you talked about the corporate companies, and I've... I've... I guess here is the question. I am not saying there is a right or wrong answer. I see the corporations and the money that they bring as having definitely positives, but also negatives. And my question is, do you think that the luxury watch industry is better off with corporate involvement in some of it, or the watch industry might actually be better off without a bunch of corporate companies and you know third party investors?
1: No, I think it's it's good that they are there. They are creating and um, paying for the ecosystem at the end of the day. They're getting customers interested in watches. And there are just so many watch enthusiasts out there and future watch enthusiasts that these small companies like ours who, um, I don't know, have a staff of maybe five to ten people cannot even get their interest or cannot even let them know that there are watches. And you have to keep in mind these large corporations or corporate brands, they pour so much money into advertising, into awareness, into also keeping an ecosystem of very, very specialized suppliers alive. I think it's absolutely positive. Would I like to work in a large corporation? No, that's why I left it. That's why I didn't want to work in a stock listed company. Okay. But,
0: so it's, it's, it's sort of like a necessary evil because I think that there's a lot of, you know, you, whether you want to be funny about it or sort of you know, depressed about it, there's a lot of challenges that come with having these entities around. But what you're saying is that they're, the money that comes with them allows for an infrastructure that probably wouldn't be there without them.
1: I I wouldn't call it a necessary evil, it's just part of the ecosystem and I think it's an important ecosystem and they, of course, the the money that goes into that ecosystem is important, but keep in mind, they um, keep the watchmaker schools alive. Quite a few of these watchmakers might um, at some point decide, yeah, I've been a production watchmaker for 10 years now, I've been tightening these two screws for 10 years. I want to do more. I want to really build um, movement parts. I want to um, create my own watches, maybe. They, um, if you look at some of the larger and more prominent independent brands, these people have nearly all worked in the conglomerates.
0: Hi, this is Ariel Adams, founder of A Blog to Watch, with a message about eBay. I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than 20 years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? Timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. Here's how it works. Luxury Names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. Certified by Brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source, all with the peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit ebay.com slash certified by brand for more information. I think I think what you're saying is, is something I actually agree with because there's a lot of frustrations and you hear about how these you know big corporations can be stifling of creativity. But at the same time, the better sides of this industry and the better employees of these companies naturally know that the so, sort of more artistic, independent-minded of the designers, of the watchmakers, of the engineers need to be celebrated, need to be included. You know, they make sure that independence as a category get involved included in a lot of the big events and a lot of the communication. And they sort of like to make sure that there's a focus on it. And so I truly believe that the more artistic, artisanal side, if you will, of modern luxury watchmaking uh, can only exist because of some of that uh, patronage or at least that acknowledgement from the luxury companies. Even if they're not directly funding it, they're providing a real platform.
1: Yes, and uh, I, I totally agree, and they are our talent pool.
0: Yeah, so, so the good people that, that come out of them get sick of that job and then come work for you.
1: Well, not necessarily for us, but for independents, or they start their own brand. They're creating jobs for very artisanal suppliers, for example. So yeah, I, th- I think it's it's good. Do you like everything the large brands Create obviously not Uh, personal taste plays a role but also um some of the customs in the in the watch industry like having to replace a perfectly good product with just a new iteration of it which might not even be as good as the (laughs) the previous one just because it's that time of year again some of the dishonesty is not necessarily down my alley (laughs)
0: <laughs> and you're an honest guy, so that's that's important to point out. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Zeitwinkel itself and, and talk a little bit about some of the choices you made and things like that. I want to go straight to the movements. Yeah. And you have uh, a couple of in-house made movements, and these are automatics, and they're very pretty. And they're done in this sort of German style with you know German silver, the three-quarter plate. Um, other than maybe it being a region that is near and dear to your heart, why did you choose that particular type type of aesthetic and architecture for your movements was the best, the most reliable, maybe the most culturally relevant to you? Because you could have done anything. Why did you start with these sort of German-style movement designs?
1: Well, first of all, we wanted to have an automatic movement with a very strong central um, rotor and and, um, winding system. Because at the time when we uh, started many of the few in-house or manufacture movements were actually modified Unitas movements. And even with a completely proprietary um, design, we were when we came out, we were asked by many of the journalists who should have known better, how did you turn an ETA movement into this? Right, um, so <laughs> I think for, for us it was very very important to have an an automatic movement that is not based on anything. So we like the three quarter plate um, because it's it's quite sturdy. It also offers a um, a lot of space for decorations. But I-
0: explain why that's important. Why does I mean for people that really don't know why is the sturdiness uh, uh, something valuable uh, when 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 doing what you're trying to do.
1: Okay, so you're asking the guy who has absolutely no idea of watchmaking in this setup. Now, we wanted a very reliable and sturdy movement. And the, the three-quarter plate and all of our plates are not optimized and bridges are not optimized for thickness. They're optimized for stability. The three-quarter plate is not that easy to mount because you have to get everything right as opposed to when you only have um, two or three bearings um, that, that you need to um, hit right when you have a, a series of smaller bridges. But the three-quarter plate, if mounted correctly, gives a lot of stability to the movement. So um, our watches are also not the thinnest as they could be because the movement is very sturdy and... The fact that we use German silver, which is a very hard and solid alloy, adds to that. Um, I've heard that if we're all long gone, any watchmaker who can work on on German silver can rebuild any part of the bridges and um, plates in that watch even 200 years down the line.
0: Okay, so it was about durability in terms of the watch not breaking and, and, and the parts not deforming, uh, but requires a more precision manufacturing approach because the tolerances are far less forgiving.
1: Yes, and um, also if you have a sturdy movement that doesn't um, bend, as, as you said, um, that adds to the precision of the watch, obviously.
0: Because right. you, have, and, and, you, have,
1: you have less friction, you have less grinding, yeah. um, in in the that
0: Your your team seemed to want to make a really good wristwatch instrument as opposed to the most luxurious wearable or the most artistically dense. Um, did you all agree going into it that you sort of wanted the same type of watch design? Did you actually have disagreements? How did the end the final aesthetic, which is again very you know, utilitarian precision, like the sort of like a, like uh, if you were a tool fetishist, you'd, you'd sort of love some of this. How, wh- how, was this was this always known, or did this sort of emerge through the process of design?
1: the The general DNA was was clear, and keep in mind, we worked three years on the movements, and when we started out, we knew where which part of the um, watch. Uh, the the dials would be so obviously if you have the axis for a small second in a certain position that's where the um, small seconds hand will be but we didn't sure, have sure. any of the design details that only emerged in okay. so the movement started this that yeah, the rest definitely. of it came later the the two movement calibers started this the large date um, movement and the base movement, and I I just looked yesterday, looked at first drawings from then 2007, 2008, first renderings, um, which I really have to post (laughs) in the next weeks, because some of that is really funny. It it was a very clumsy uh, first attempt at um, making that work, but in the end, it was nearly automatic, because if you move this zero point Zero, five millimeters to the left, then then it's harmonic, right?, um, yeah, so it was yeah. a lot of trial and error and a lot of um, we, we did a lot of playing around with um, large mock-up paper dials where we sat down and and push stuff back and forth on the dial to really find the harmonic balance. But did we fight? I wouldn't say fight, but the Max Peter and I, we have very different personalities. We come from different backgrounds. The fact that we are still friends after 17 years of doing this together speaks for itself. But um, there's a lot of different opinions and different uh ways of creativeness, right, of pressing, uh, expressing creativeness. And then you have watchmakers in the workshop who have very um, firm opinions of what will be acceptable and what not. So, yeah, it's it's a constant fight, obviously.
0: So you were talking about this play of the harmony in the dial, and I'm looking at the 273-degree watch, um, which has an asymmetric dial, if you will, subsidiary seconds, a big date and power reserve indicator. What does this 273 degree uh, uh, part of the name mean? And talk about getting this uh, this dial r-
1: correct. Yes, that, that dial was probably the, the most difficult one to get right because you had to... Optimize the interplay between different um, geometric shapes. You have what basically amounts to a triangle or a piece of cake in the um, area of the one or two. Pizza uh, slice? yeah it's a pizza slice it's a power reserve pizza slice and you're just giving me the idea for a new watch design for first of april and um and then, uh, you have the rectangular large date on the in the in the eleventh position and the very large small seconds display um near the sixth position and getting the size of each of one of those right and um obviously the the axis is clear but how do you Um, position it for example the pizza slice shaped um, power reserve what's the angle of that there was and we had lots of time because the the movement development took forever so uh, we would be sitting there for two or three months uh, playing around with that dial putting it away coming back to it and we haven't changed it since but the the name you asked for the for the name of the watches yeah
0: 273 degrees
1: So that was pretty simple, and we um, could come up with all kinds of explanations, but Zeitwinkel means time angle, a measurement of the true local time. And Max, being the creative guy, said these watches have to um, have angles as a name. And to give an idea of why at that point we said, sure, let's do it. Max, when we started out, said, okay, the first thing we need is our own typeface. Our own font. Everything we write has to be in that font. And Peter and I were looking at each other and saying, why do we need this? Why is that important? But Max insisted. So uh, we have our own typeface from which the the logo is also derived. So by the time we said it has to be degrees, it was logic. Um... Um, and we just sat down, took the four quadrants for the first four um, models we had. From And then, so we knew the first model would have to be in the um, up to 90 degrees, up to 180, up to 270. And that's how we said the most complicated model would obviously have to be in the, in the fourth quadrant. Um, and since we wanted to leave some space, it's just a little bit above 270. It's 273 I degrees. like that a little
0: bit of uh, product planning where you have some, you know, future models anticipated. You know, that's 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 cool. You know, the one area where I I feel looking at the collection now, where I'd like to see more, I, maybe not innovation, but experimentation and a little bit more playfulness, is actually the cases. I I, I really admire the dial aesthetic that you're going for. The movements obviously have a, a wonderful character to them, and anyone that appreciates timekeeping knows that that, uh, there's a lot to admire there. But the case, I feel like you guys haven't been quite as adventurous. What's your response to that?
1: Well, yeah, and that uh, comes back to internal discussions we have all the time. Um, The case is is quite complicated. If you look at it in detail, you have this interplay between glass bead-blasted areas and polished areas. Um, At the time, it was very, very complicated to make. But in in my right hand, I'm holding a stereolithographic model that I received yesterday of a new case we hopefully bring out for a second line of cases next year. Um, That will still pick up the DNA of this case, but in a um, slightly different version. That also allows for, um, I would say, more individual appearance of the the watches if you look at them from the front. But if you look at them from the side, it appears sleeker, but still um, has that very same DNA of the brushed and polished or um, blasted and and polished um, areas. Are you you
0: talking like an integrated bracelet case? What are we talking about?
1: um, Well, that brings us to stuff that is fashionable, right? Um, So by the time we find out that green dials are fashionable and we can actually make a green dial, we can see the green dials of everybody else in the rearview mirror. So we're not doing anything because right. it's fashionable. Yes, you can um, add a um, semi-integrated bracelet to that um, watch, and you know, in, yeah, it could also be integrated with um, very little effort. But yeah, it will also look good on a little more uh, or a little less refined leather strap or um, a broad rubber strap. Um, so yeah, it's it's probably more flexible and more along the lines of um, individual individualization of the uh, front side of the case.
0: Why can't we have as much fascination with a bracelet as sort of a watch case and movement? I feel like this is such an area that there isn't enough investment. People buy a lot of watches because of a cool bracelet, but you have so few brands that actually invest into like truly incredible bracelets that can they can carry a timepiece is that is that an area of interest or is that to sort of like a you know like a, a side thought like oh gosh we have to put a strap on this case uh, how annoying is that
1: i think when when we started out um straps and bracelets were more of an afterthought um of course you had to have them and there were always sports watches and i this uh Words very seldom because hardly anybody ever wears them for sports, same as diverse watches. But um, obviously, those were, were available and there were a few icons out there. And it's only been in the last 10 years outside of Japan, where that has always been a big issue, um, that customers really put a lot of emphasis on these straps where somebody would pay a lot of money for aftermarket straps, maybe handmade straps, where you have all these wonderful artisans that make straps now and that can live off of that, um, like Vladimir Petrov in um, in Basel, for example, that um, it, it's become more interesting for the watch brands to actually invest some time in it and not only have it as an afterthought because they will actually be able to sell enough of them to... Um, justify spending time on that. Yeah, we're, we're putting a lot more effort on that. We're, um, we've also been driven by the likes of um, Chrono Tempus. I don't, I don't know if you saw a cooperation with um, with them. It's a collectors' club and um, the main person there, which um, on Instagram has the handle Scaramanga, he is very opinionated um, about bracelets and um, how they should be, so we had a lot of exchange with him about uh, metal bracelets.
0: And what was the consensus from that conversation?
1: Um, The consensus is that metal bracelets, if done right, are super expensive but you have to do them (laughs) right or not do them at all. And we we have a design that um, might work. But keep in mind, we're currently building around 100 watches per year. So how many bracelets will we sell?
0: So it's seen as a wonderful luxury, but essentially it's like investing for another watch in the watch and people aren't necessarily ready to spend double the price.
1: Yes, some some are. And um, I really like that fact that... um, You spend quite some time when you discuss the model and the dial color or dial variant um, of a watch with a watch enthusiast. They also want to spend that same time on the available straps.
0: Now, I want to talk about pricing a little bit because I actually, as someone that understands watches, feel that Zeitwinkel prices are quite fair for what you get. At least I imagine that if you sort of really audit it down, you're charging a very fair amount. But if you don't know a lot about watches, you could actually easily come to the opposite conclusion just out of ignorance and not sort of understanding what's going into it. So I want you to just sort of make make the pitch – why are Zeitwinkel watches really value-priced? They're not They're not inexpensive, but why are they value-priced?
1: Well, they're actually too cheap, and that's another, um, or too affordable, that's another discussion we have. Because for a long time, we priced them to market. In the beginning, we often received the um, response, this is more expensive than a Rolex, I'd rather buy a Rolex for that price. And even to this day, despite having had to increase the price over the years, we feel this is an an offering that you don't find in this price range. So starting with the movement, in-house automatic movement, untreated German silver, anything that goes wrong with the movement means the component needs to be rejected. You cannot hide anything if you don't coat a plate after um, decoration. So um, the the fact that everything is hand-prepared, hand-assembled, we don't take shortcuts. Everything in the movement is decorated. It's um, to a very, very high standard that you usually only find in watches that are at least twice as expensive. Um, We have most of the components made around us in Switzerland, which is very costly, apart from the cases which currently come from... Um, in in Germany. And um, we put a lot of effort into building these watches and we don't take shortcuts. However, we don't get the price we would get if we priced them bottom up with the usual, even the lowest usual um, multiples that you apply in the watch industry.
0: And what is your hope behind that practice? Obviously, it's very favorable to people that want the most value for money. But talk a little bit more about why you do that, because it's definitely a minority viewpoint in the luxury industry right now.
1: Yes, um, it, it obviously is, but it's also one of the growing pains when in the beginning you think um, that that would be a fair price and you find out, yes, it is fair, just not to yourself. And um, you, we will have to increase prices. But one of the points where we are fairly lucky with the fairly low production numbers we have is that um, we don't have to pay as much for marketing as some of the larger brands. So we always wanted to build watches where the value is in the watch and not in the marketing we do for it. And for some brands, most watch enthusiasts can name off the top of their head. um, It's the exact opposite, components that... Are um, that say Swiss-made may not be Swiss-made entirely, and um, places that they claim are decorated are not really decorated, and they live off the, the brand value. Now, as a small brand and a fairly unknown brand, we cannot charge for the brand value, and that already makes a large difference in, in the pricing. But we will not be able to, sus- um, to sustain these prices forever, very obviously. That
0: makes sense. And I think that it's important for people to recognize that it's moments like this, that it is a good time to, quote-unquote, get into a brand because it can change very, very quickly. But I, I also want to talk about sort of performance over the last couple of years. Uh, it's been known, I don't know all the details myself, that at Richemont, uh in Glashute uh, has been quite resilient and has maintained uh, very strong order books, and has had you know you know they again they don't make I know they make a few thousand uh, watches per year they, they, it's not crazy volumes but they've had um, a very <clears throat> a large degree of sustained uh, success uh, and your watches are thematically in a lot of ways very very similar um, have you been able to benefit from their popularity or are you still seen as as, as uh, a very different type
1: of brand by by most consumers I think we're we're seen as a different type of brand because. Um, mm-hmm. Somebody who wants to buy a Lange and Sohne also buys it for the brand and for the, the ov- obviously for the watches they make. But we're not in any way, or let's say, to ninety percent in any way dependent on developments in the watch market, because we're so small. It's it's a different ecosystem. If somebody wants to buy a Zeitwinkel watch, they might have been looking at it for five years. <laughs> we had a customer recently who said, yeah, yeah, I saw you in Basel at Basel World um, at your stand there. And um, I discussed with, um, I think it was Peter, and um, I always wanted to buy one, and now I'm buying one. The last time we exhibited... That's, that,
0: that's, that's not surprising to me at all, actually. No, no,
1: but, yeah, you know, the last time we exhibited in Basel was, I think, two, 2013. So that's 10 years ago. And um, I
0: I remember it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And obviously, we're affected um, by what the market does to to suppliers. Obviously, we're affected by um, recessions, by the uh, willingness to spend money for something you definitely don't need, like a wristwatch. But we're not affected if the watch market in China... um, I don't know, booms or, um, has a problem or if the general watch market has a problem or if, um, there's, um, too much inventory in the market and prices fall because the brands, um, put you on a waiting list and call you the next day with a 20% rebate. Right. That that makes sense. That's just not our, uh, it's, it's a different animal. Now,
0: I know that when a brand begins and starts to sell into the market, what they find is actually who likes their brand and who wears their watches and who has enthusiasm for it. Even if they imagined uh, when you're making the brand who would wear it, uh, it ends up being always a little bit different. Who do you find amongst the sort of taxonomy of watch collectors are those that, that are drawn to Zeitwinkel and maybe why?
1: So yeah, it's, it's an interesting point because when you start the brand, you um, imagine who would be um, your customer. You obviously have to. You build the watches that you like, but you always have to be realistic enough to ask yourself, would others like them and what would these people be like? So we imagine people. We never imagined uh, any actors or athletes or astronauts or whatever. Who would um, speak for our watches, but we had an idea, and reality is much more complicated than than that, so right more and more we're, <laughs> more and more we're uh, appealing to classic watch collectors who cover the um, independent scene or who mature and I'm using this word in a very positive way um, as one of different ways to do that into the direction of smaller independent um, watch manufacturers. But actually the most interesting customers are those that may have bought watches in the range of let's say two to 3,000 Swiss francs before. Okay. who um, circle around the independent watch market or generally the offerings in the watch market and then take five years to really look at what they want for that one watch they will buy, for that one expensive watch they will buy. And so These always- are like
0: the the, the the data nerds of watch collectors who just want to have the perfect like set of circumstances with price and design, and and, and they
1: they coalesce to you. Yes, and they're they're not necessarily watch collectors. We had one of these who was 80 years old, who said, I never bought an expensive watch in my life, but I really, really Ah. like this, right? And um, who only then started to look at, yeah, but what does this watch do? And why is it like that? And what does this part do? and really got into it. Or um, another one who just received his watch, who um, says, I've looked at everything. I, I wanted an expensive watch, so to speak, a a good watch I will only wear on Sundays. And I looked at everything, and it's all not appealing to me, but then I saw your sapphire dial, um, 273 degrees. And I couldn't forget it. I came back to it again and again and again. And then I finally visited him in his home because I found the the story quite interesting (laughs) about how he he found us and uh, how long he has been looking. So those are the stories that, that really help you evolve where you find out that yes you have to try new things and new cases new models but <laughs> you also have a very very long time until somebody really gets to know what you've been doing for i don't know the the first watches came out in 2009 okay but yeah those models are still around and and people only find them now uh, yeah
0: i mean the, the 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 collection has remained relatively consistent since launch it sounds like you've got some you know, new models coming out that will add a sort of evolution. We're sort of almost out of time, Albert, but I want to ask one more question. And that is, over the years, how have you developed as a watch enthusiast yourself just out of participation with the brand? What have you? How have your tastes developed? What have you sort of realized that you valued? Um, you know, how has being part of a brand shifted your journey as an
1: enthusiast? Well, it's, uh, I would say the two reasons, realism and relationships. So, yeah. constantly um, being behind the curtain of the the watch industry, I think I'm very, very realistic in my assessment of which watches I not only like aesthetically, but um, which represent a good value for the price. And I have really come to the point where... I believe that relationship part is so important. So, for example, if you look at um, Paul Gerber from Zurich, who doesn't build that many watches anymore, but who's a person behind those watches? Um, GOS in um, Sweden. You know, the personality of the person, Patrick, who runs GOS, is in those watches. And I think that makes it a lot more valuable than just a design consensus in a marketing meeting five years ago, somewhere in Neuchâtel or in Geneva. So I think that's the, the shift I, I took in in my assessment of, of watches.
0: That's that's all the time we have. Um, the website is zeitwinkel.ch, that's Z-E-I-T-W-I-N-K-E-L.ch, just Figured I would say it because there can be multiple ways of spelling that. Albert, I want to thank you so much for participating on this episode of the Superlative Podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share Superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch weekly podcast. For show ideas, comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at ablogtowatch.com.